27. We're going to look at um, about halfway through, we're going to come back to this because this is really the background of um, what Paul is dealing with uh, in uh, Galatians chapter 3, at least in this middle section. So um, in this middle section, we are going to begin uh, with, verses, with verse 10. We're going to go through verse 14 today. And um, I'll leave this up here for you. We will uh, we'll constantly be referring back to, uh, to the text itself. And, and then, we'll, then, we'll, then we'll come back into uh, this and we'll go over to uh, Deuteronomy 27, 27, 28, 29, and 30. These are, these are of paramount importance for what he's talking about. Um, I want to say that these are some of the most... Um, some of the most dense verses in in all of Galatians, and they're not easy to understand. And I, I'm not trying to I'm just understand. I'm not trying to make this difficult. Actually, I'm trying to um, trying to simplify what what Paul is saying. The everything that is that Paul is saying though has to be understood through through the lens of his Jewish understanding of the scriptures. And so part of what has, um, what's happened within the Western churches is that uh, within the Gentile churches, which is uh, what we are, uh, we have, we have really forgotten what it's all about, what, what the, the Old Testament scriptures uh, are about. And we have oftentimes misunderstood them. And for us to get a, a good understanding of what uh, what Paul is saying here in Galatians, we actually have we must get back and understand the scriptures. That's that's what he's dealing with. And and so though it may be difficult and it will strain it will strain you in every way, does me. Uh, we we must try to get a hold of of what he is saying in um, in this text. So uh, we're going to start in, um, I'll start by reading it, reading the text, and then we will come back through and look at uh, verse by verse, a couple of verses at a time, and and see what the uh, what the flow of his logic is here. Okay, so uh, let's start in verse 10. Um, first of all, I want, to, I'm going to translate this a little differently, and uh, I'll could show you, I could show you why I'm doing this, um, but um, there's this little phrase that says, um, out of works of law, out of works of law. And you'll notice that um, in, this, in this text, this is the ESV, they say for all who rely on works of the law, but the word rely is not there. And they have interpreted out of works of law to mean relying on works of the law. In other words, they are viewing this as a statement about how someone gets saved and goes to heaven and, and whatnot. That's not what he's saying here, okay? It's not what he's getting at. Uh, we're going to look at what he, is, what he is getting at here. But uh, this is, so, uh, frankly, it's wrong. For all who are out of works of the law are under a curse, he says. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous one, the, the righteous, shall live by faith. 
But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs, who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Okay, and then next, uh, next week we'll start in 15 and, and go through that. Uh, but I want to talk to you uh, today about what he is talking about here, the curse, uh, the curse and the blessings. And if you, were, if you were a Jew in the first century, and you heard these two words put together, you would, you would immediately, in the same context, you would immediately say, this man is talking about Deuteronomy 27 through 30, because it's where the curses are and the blessings. Okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna get a, we're gonna step back and, and get a run and go at it. I'll talk a little bit about what we discussed last week to get a, a context. And then we're going to see what, uh, what Paul's argument is here about uh, blessings and curses, or curses and blessings. Okay, so recall that last week we looked at the way that God had planned all along that he would create a family for Abraham. We saw that, um, we saw that those who attempt to prevent this family from forming into one family, like Peter did in chapter 2, are reversing the accomplishment of Christ. Okay, so God had promised uh, God had promised Abraham that there, he would have a family, and it would be uh, it would the seed, the descendants, um, probably an unfortunate translation, but the family we might say consisted of his own family, at least part of his own family. We know that even within that family, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, refers to God making a distinction even among the physical heirs of, of Abraham. We know that Ishmael was not the bearer of the promise. We know that Isaac was. So even within Abraham's family, God was making a distinction. Okay. And then also in the, in the promise to Abraham, God had said in your seed, in your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, somehow God is going to, bring a blessing through the physical descendants of Abraham, and it's going to result in the whole world experiencing blessings. Okay, and so that's what we were we were looking at last week. We saw that those who attempt to prevent this from for, this family from forming into one family, like Peter did, are reversing the accomplishment of Christ. They're getting in the way of what Jesus had accomplished on the cross. The one through uh, through whom, uh, through whose death, he had crucified Paul. He says, in other words, Paul standing for Israel was crucified, so that Paul in the Messiah might be raised from the dead. Okay. Now uh, we we saw last week. We saw last week there in at the end of chapter two. Paul said. I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live in the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What we see from that is that Paul is saying through the death of Christ, he died. And he, in that particular section, is talking about Israel or all who come to know the Messiah out of 
those out of physical Israel, those are the ones who are crucified with Christ. They no longer live, but the Messiah lives in them. Okay? And this comes about by the resurrection. Very complicated stuff. It really is, is complicated. But he's saying that in the Messiah, those who were in covenant with God originally, if they die with the Messiah, not physically, but if they die, that is, they put themselves into the Messiah by faith in him, that is an act of dying, symbolized in the baptism, that they also will live with him. And this takes on multiple dimensions. They live with him in the sense that they, they have brand new life. They, they have the future resurrection to look for. They have the spirit of God indwelling them. That's, that's what he means. Okay, so Paul there, standing in as Israel, says that he died with the Messiah so that he might be raised with the Messiah and possess a righteousness, that is, a covenant membership that doesn't come through the law, but comes through the faithfulness of the Messiah. The faithfulness of the Messiah unto death. Okay, so to summarize what, what we looked at last week and the week before, God is creating a newly resurrected and covenanted people out of the Jews who are in the Messiah. And not only that, as we will see today, he is renewing the mission for Israel in the Messiah. And Paul counts himself as one of those. So that by this newly covenanted people, let's call them Israel in Christ, or you could even call them Christ for short, as he's going to do later on. This newly covenanted people called Christ, Israel in Christ, God is going to bring the Gentiles in this into this family through them. Let's call them Christ as well. Okay, so in other words, everyone who comes into Christ will be called later on. We'll see in verse sixteen, the Messiah, the Christ, and uh, this because he represents all of them. In his death they died, and in his resurrection they live, and so he can call everyone who's in the Messiah, the Messiah. We'll see that. We'll see that next week. Now, he means, he means that. Um, so, in in verse sixteen, when he says that to the seed, the promises were made, which is Christ. He means that the promises were made to the one family in Christ, and this is summed up as Christ. We'll see that. We'll see that next week, and we'll get to that. Now, this is this is not simply dry doctrine, as most people have read it. Like this is this is how we talk about salvation. It's not exactly that. Um, it yes, it 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 connotes those things, but it is not simply a way of talking about salvation. Paul is telling a story here. Uh, he has a a narrative in mind, and it it's often that our interpretation, in our interpretation, we have kind of lost the backstory. We don't know where he's been, where he's getting these ideas, uh, but uh, this, I think, is the story in a nutshell. And this is it. This is a simplified, simplified, simplified version of, of the story. Mankind went wrong in Adam, who, as the representative of all mankind, created a humanity under sin. Sin with a big S. Big sin. 
to the extent that sin was now ruling over everyone in the world. Within the story, God calls Abraham and he makes promises to Abraham, promises that he will give Abraham a family, that in Abraham and his seed, all the nations would be blessed. And through this seed, all those who were in Adam will be put right. In other words, God is undoing what happened with Adam, who is the representative of all mankind. He's undoing what happened with Adam through the promise made to Abraham. Abraham's seed, his descendants, on the basis of the promise of Abraham, are called out of Egypt and formed into a nation. A firstborn call, uh, son, they are called. This son is Israel. And Israel is promised an inheritance, again, on the basis of God's promise to Abraham, which was a promise of blessing for the nations. They're promised an inheritance. In, in the story, it looks as though this inheritance is just the land. But we find out, actually, that it must be a land that encompasses not just Israel, but the whole world. And so you might say, the meek shall inherit the earth. So that this inheritance then has been expanded. We'll, we'll look, we've looked a little bit at that. Uh, we can see it in Psalm 2. But this inheritance, the whole world, is characterized as a blessing for all the nations. Now, this is the, this is, this is the problem. This is where the problem enters in. It's good, but it's, it's a problem at the same time. On, God's, on their way to the inheritance, to the land, God gives Israel the law. And this law, though good, holy, and just, has left Israel by design not in full possession of their inheritance. And it has not resulted in blessing to the nations. The law of Moses, though good, holy, and just, by design, and that's an important uh, distinction, by design it has left Israel not in full possession of their inheritance, and it has not resulted in the blessing to the nations. What has this law done? It has left Israel in exile, languishing among the nations. In a word, it has left Israel under the curse. Not just any curse, but the curse of the law. And this is the problem, according to Paul. Not simply a problem for their salvation. I mean, he's not saying here that everybody in Israel is lost and going to hell. That's not what he's saying. But Israel as a whole, and in relation to their carrying of the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles, is under a curse. Israel as a nation is under a curse, and that has stopped the blessing from going to the nations. That's what he's dealing with here. And if we understand this, the whole thing begins to make sense. The bridge is out. The bridge that keeps Israel in exile under the curse, this curse created a traffic jam, a roadblock, not just for Israel, but for God's promises that were to extend to the Gentiles. 
okay? We saw this a little bit last week. The promise that would create a family for Abraham consisting of Jew and Gentile was interrupted by the law, okay? Now, what happened, and, and this is going to be Paul's explanation of, of the way that God remedies this situation. We still have to deal with, with what the law was doing, which we'll get to next week. But what, what's happened at this point within the story is that the law is in the way, must be removed so that the blessing can then go to the nations. Okay? Now, this is what, this is what Paul believes has happened. And this is what we saw also in the Gospels. It's not there in didactic form in the sense that we see it in Paul. <clears throat> but even in, in Mark, the, the gospel writers themselves and Paul believed that Jesus, in his death, took on the exile of Israel. In other words, they, he took on the curse of Israel. If, if is, think about it this way. If Israel is under the curse of the law, how can the blessing go to the nations and thus be a fulfillment of Genesis 12, Genesis 15? How can it happen? It can't, right? There's a roadblock. There's a stoppage. Something has prevented the promise going to the nations. And Paul says it's the Torah. It's the law. It's not the, not the whole Torah, but the, the Mosaic law, which all of Israel is under. Okay? In his exile-bearing death, he would bring Israel out of exile and that would then allow the blessing of Abraham to flow to the Gentiles. Let's see how this works out. So first of all, we need to look at the, at the, the blessings and the curses in Deuteronomy 27 through 29. I've, I've highlighted just a bit of that, and let's look at it. Okay. So in... Let me do that. I was afraid of that. I did not mean to close that out, and now I've lost my highlights. Ah, good. They stay. All right, so um, Deuteronomy 27, verse 1. Then Moses and all the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. Okay. And I would encourage you, during this next week, it's not a, it's not a really pleasant read, but I would encourage you to read 27 through the end of 30 at least, but Deuteronomy 27 through the end of 30. And you see what's going on here, I think. It's not, it's not that it's altogether clear what's happening, but this seems to be the larger, the larger scheme. Here they are standing on the, on the edge of entering into the promised land, and God, comes, God tells Moses, write all, these, write all the words of this uh, covenant on these stones and, and give them to the people, and they're supposed to keep them, okay? This is, the, this is the covenant that I'm going to make with them, and if they do them, they will live. Okay. Now, this is, an, this is added to the covenant made with Abraham. It's not primary, and that's an important point. This is something that is added to the descendants of Abraham, but not part, it's not part of the original covenant made with Abraham. This is where Paul is going with this in the rest of the chapter. But it is there, and it is binding. It's a binding covenant upon Israel. 
Moses and, and the elders charged the people, saying, Keep all the covenant uh, commandments which I command you today. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. Then Moses and the, and the Levitical priest spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you've become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the works, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall say, Amen. In other words, we agree. They're, they're agreeing to keep this covenant, every line of it. Cursed is the one who dishonors his father and mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, an orphan, a widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's skirt, and all the people shall say, Amen. I mean, it goes on and on. So all of these things, if you do one of these, you are cursed. It's that simple. It's that, it really is that simple. Verse 20, uh, chapter 28, verse 1. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed you shall be in the city. Blessed you shall be in the country. Blessed, you sh blessed shall be the, the fruit of your body and the, and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your your, uh, your beasts, and in the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Blessed you shall be, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you be when you come in, and blessed you shall be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way, and will flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns, and in all that you put your hand to, he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. He will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Now look at verse 10. This is a hint about uh, the, what's, what their purpose is, part of their purpose. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you're called by, my, by the name of the Lord, and they will be afraid of you. They will fear you. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity and so forth, in the, in the fruit of your body and the fruit of your beast and the fruit of your ground. He keeps repeating this, okay? Verse 15, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, uh, which I'm charging you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. First, you shall be in the city, cursed in the country, cursed in the basket and kneading bowl. Cursed be the, the, the fruit of your body and the fruit of the ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed you shall be when you come in, cursed when you go out. He repeats all this twice. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke. Okay. It keeps on. keeps on. Read through this. Read through this. It'll strike fear in us as well. I mean, seriously, this is, it's terrifying. Uh, it's terrifying. 
So all these curses shall come on you and come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. They shall become a sign and a wonder on you and your seed forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things. Going. It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Now listen to this. This is, this is key. This is exile. This is what he's talking about. The climax of disobedience is exile. And exile is another way of saying death. Exile and death are synonymous. You look back at, um, look back at uh, Genesis 2 and 3. In the day that, we, that you eat of it, you will surely die. What happens to Adam when he eats of it? He's kicked out of the garden. He's, he's dead. Right? He's, he's in exile. That's, these are equivalent. Now, this is, the, this is the culmination of these curses. The Lord your, will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you and your fathers have not known. Among the nations you will find no rest, and there, you, there will be no resting place for the sole of your feet. Um, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, these great signs and wonders. Yet to this day, this is key, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. I've led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out yet. Yet. This is, this is the issue. Now the generation to come, your sons will rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a distant land when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it will say, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive and no grass grows on it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Adma and Zavoyim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. All the nations will say, what has the Lord done thus to the land? Why has the Lord done thus to the land? Why, did, why this great outburst of anger? The men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he had made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They served other gods and worshiped them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. Now, if this is not clear, it should be a lot clearer now what Paul is talking about when he's talking about curse. Now, look at what, this is, this is not to leave them without hope, okay? He also made promises. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. And you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. In other words, you're in exile. You're going to call these things to mind and return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you, you and your sons, that he will restore your captivity. He will, he will have compassion on you and gather you. 
from where he's scattered you. If you're outcast from there, he will bring you back. He will bring you into the land. Now, this is, this is key. He will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Now, if we back up from this and we think about the broader structure of 27, 28, 29, and 30, he lays out the blessings and the curses, the curses and the blessings. And he says, look, you're going to disobey these, the, you're going to disobey the, the Torah and God is going to banish you into the, into the nations. And this is not a, it's not optional. This is, this is a prophecy. You're going to disobey. And in fact, you're going to come under the curse. The hope though is for chapter 30. Chapter 30 is, is the restoration or the renewal of the covenant where what was written on stone becomes internalized in the heart and God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Now, what Paul says is that if you want to summarize this, all this happened in Jesus. All this happened in the death of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. Okay? That's where it all happened. Now, let's, um, so here, just, uh, if you want more, more proof of uh, this being a prophecy, this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they're going. It will forsake me and break my covenant, which I've made with them. And then he says, write a song at the end of 31, 32 is going to be the song of Moses. And it's not pretty. Look, you keep reading, read Psalm 30, I mean, Deuteronomy 32 as well. He basically says, uh, you're, you're worthless, and I've forsaken you, Israel, and it, yeah, it's not pretty. What does this have to do, though, with what Paul is talking about? Okay, so, um, <clears throat> much in every way, as Paul would say. Here in this passage, in, in Galatians, he quotes from Deuteronomy 27, 26. This is how we know that he has this in mind. Cursed be every man who does not continue in all these words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. They agree. And, and you, it's, not that, it's not that they they're just under a curse if they do one thing wrong, but all of these need to be kept. Right? It's, a, it's a unit. It comes to them as a covenant. If you break it, you break the covenant, period. And so what that means is that they're in exile to that day. So first century AD, Israel is un, under the curse in exile. Okay, so now let's look at the text and answer some questions. Galatians 3.10, for all who are out of works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. First, the text does not say rely on works of the law. It says, for as many as are out of the works of the law are under a curse. What this means, as we have seen from Deuteronomy 27 through 30, is that Israel are the ones who are out of the works of the law. In this, in this sense, they possess the law as a binding covenant. This is not simply about doing good deeds, getting into heaven. It's not that at all. They are under a binding covenant. And if they violate the covenant, they go into exile. And that's what he's talking about here. Now, the problem for Paul is that is what this does to the promise to Abraham, how it relates to it. 
Okay? As those who are in covenant, they are under the curse that the law brings for disobedience. Now, what he is not saying is that every individual who's ever lived within Israel has done everything wrong. We're talking about Israel as a people, Israel under the curse of the law. And these, this is what he means by those who are out of the law. The problem with this situation is not that every individual will die and go to hell because he or she is under the curse. That's God's business. He will deal with ind individuals as he sees fit. The problem for Paul has to do with Abrahamic covenant and the promise that God is fulfilling. Specifically, the fact that God has renewed the covenant in the Messiah's death. And this results, verses 11 and 12, it results in justification. That is, possessing of righteousness, covenant membership, and the status of being righteous. Now it is evident, he says in verse 11, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. How does one get into the covenant? How does one obtain the covenant membership of, of righteous, status of righteousness? By believing the promise about God's faithfulness. It was always this way, and it will always be this way. The those who are out of works of the law, they bear a curse, but even those within it can be righteous. Some of them can be righteous. That, it, these two are not mutually exclusive. Doesn't mean that everybody who's under the curse is going to not participate in the resurrection. Of course some will. And so that's, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about how is the promise that, Abraham, that God made with Abraham going to get to the nations. It's always been this way that the, the righteous are those who trust in God's faithfulness, not simply possessing Torah and attempting to do it as a badge of membership. He's, the, the point Paul is making is that possession of Torah does not mean that you're in the Abrahamic covenant and that God is fulfilling his promises through you. In fact, to have the Torah and not continue in it is to place oneself under the covenantal curse. And we don't want to do that because you will not be a part of God's fresh world, God's new world that he's making uh, through the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember Abraham, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness in the covenant. That's what it means, he's in the covenant. So also for Habakkuk, the righteous one shall live by faith. Paul is not simply proof texting here. He's not simply finding a verse that mentions righteousness or righteous and then equating that with justification because he wants to talk about justification. No, he's talking about covenantal relationships. The covenant that was made with Abraham was a covenant that was entered into on the basis of faith, the faith of Abraham in the faithfulness of God who makes these promises. And Abraham's status as righteous, that is having righteousness is what is called justification. We had time to look at Habakkuk, which we don't, but maybe one day we'll look at the whole book of Habakkuk, which is just three short chapters. We would see that what Habakkuk, um, his conclusion about the righteous living by, by faithfulness has to do with the work that God is doing among the nations and among Israel and through Israel. But Habakkuk is unable to see given the circumstances, what is going to happen and how it's going to take place. And, but he concludes that the righteous, 
those who are in covenant, in good standing in the covenant, are those who have faith in God's faithfulness. Habakkuk has concluded that the righteous are those who, apart from any visible evidence that God is keeping his promises, remain confident that God is indeed keeping his promises because he said he would. This is why Habakkuk concludes his book as follows. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit in the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet and he makes me to walk on my high places. Now, think back to those curses. The curse of Deuteronomy 27 and, and 28. What does that sound like? It sounds as though Habakkuk is saying, though Israel is under a curse, right? This is exactly what he said is going to happen when Israel is under the curse. Fig tree will not blossom. There'll be no fruit on the vines. The yield of the olive would fail. The fields produce no food. The flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet, okay, the righteous shall live by faith in the faithfulness of God to, to fulfill his promises. That's the righteous one. So Israel can be cursed as a whole. The, the promise to Abraham stopped up within Israel and yet the righteous shall live by his faithfulness. I think that's what's going on. Now, the end of this present section, as I hinted at previously, we have the logjam. Verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. We have to be careful here not to remove these verses from the story we've been talking about, the story of Israel under the law. If we make this just about salvation, we remove it from the story and we lose at least half of its meaning, probably all of it. It no longer makes sense within its context. And when we do that, we no longer have the Word of God. We have words on a piece of paper that have been misinterpreted. The us in this verse, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, is Israel. With Paul as a member of Israel, and Christ, the Messiah, redeeming Israel from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for them. Now, what does it mean becoming a curse? We've already seen that. It takes us back to what the curse was that Israel was bearing. The curse of Israel that they were bearing was Deuteronomy 27 through 29 that found its climax in the exile of Israel among the nations. And what Paul is saying is that Israel of the first century AD was still in exile floundering under the rule of pagan kings, Herod, also of Rome. This is not some theoretical point. Any Jewish person in the first century AD would have told you that the promises of Ab to Abraham and to his seed and the prophets who envisioned the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham and the blessing that would extend to the nations had not been fulfilled in the first century. 
Instead, Israel was languishing in an extended exile that had been foretold in the prophets, specifically in the book of Daniel. And Paul says, as do the gospel writers in their own unique way, that Jesus took upon himself the exile of Israel. And that exile is called death. When you take upon yourself, when Jesus himself internalizes, takes upon himself the death of uh, the, the exile of Israel, that is death. That's what it means. And so in Jesus's death, then this takes on broader scope. It's not just that he dies, which is the worst thing we can imagine. It's that he takes on the curse of Israel, which is exile, which is death. Exile is death. And Jesus taking it upon himself, being obedient unto death, is taking upon himself the exile of Israel. Why? So that they can be saved? Well, yes, that they might be saved. But to be saved means so much more than just getting saved, as we'd say. It's so that they and the whole world in the Messiah can receive the blessings of Abraham and come to know Israel's God. Listen to it again. I'm going to skip the quote, because if you skip the quote, it actually it flows better. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive this promised spirit through faith. Okay? Christ redeemed Israel. We can substitute their Israel for us from the curse of the law. Why would this need to happen? What Paul says is that there's a roadblock. Because the seed of Abraham, the, the, the physical descendants of Abraham, who, who among those physical descendants had been chosen as the, the promise bearers, those possessed the promise. But Israel as a whole was under the curse of the law. And that prohibited, it prevented, the blessing of Abraham going to the Gentiles, because God all along had made promises to Israel. And Israel was to be the bearer of the blessing to the Gentiles. What is the blessing? Well, it's a lot of things. But here, it's that the Gentiles and, and the believing Jews might receive the Spirit through believing in Christ Jesus. And this is what Paul is getting at. For the Galatians, set it back within our whole context of the book. For the Galatians who are being tempted and instructed to become circumcised and bring themselves under the domain of this covenant, the old covenant, for the Galatians to do this is to bring themselves under the curse of the law. And the important thing here for Paul, one of the important things, but, but very, very high in his, in his mind, is that to go back to being like Israel under the law is to keep oneself in this present evil age. Remember at the beginning of the book, Jesus gave himself to deliver us from this present evil age. That's what he says. Now, we're going to see a little bit later that, that Paul associates this present evil age not by say, he, with, with the law. He's not saying that the law is evil but he's saying it belongs to this preparatory stage. The law, good and holy as it was, belonged to a preparatory stage within the present evil age that would give way to the inauguration 
of the new age, the age of the resurrection. And it did give way to the age to come in the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah. This is why Christ is all in all. We saw this in Mark in his own way. When Jesus gave himself to deliver those who believed in him out of this present evil age, what Paul will later in this book call the Stoicheia, he left all of that in the preparatory stage in the past. Okay? When Jesus gave himself to deliver us and what's on his mind right now, the, the Jews who believe in the Messiah, when he gave himself to deliver them out from under the, the law, he is delivering them out of this present evil age, out of that preparatory stage, and into the life of the age to come. Later in the book, he's going to call this preparatory stage and everything that belongs to it, the stoicheia. The stoicheia. We'll see, we'll see how that works. He left all of that in the past. In fact, Paul says in Colossians that he nailed it to the cross. He put it out of the way. He nailed it to the cross. Because, and this is, this is, this is key within Galatians as well, as we'll see later on. Because he was building a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's what we'll see as we continue this book. It's easy to lose our perspective in the midst of Paul's arguments here that he's putting forward in this book, but this is the overall thrust of what God has done in his son to bring Israel out of exile through the crucified body of Jesus. And this act of self-giving love opened up the blessing so that it might flow to the nations through a redeemed Israel. We will see next week another angle from which to view the accomplishment of Jesus in fulfilling the promise made to Abraham. And also, we'll look at Paul's answer to some of the implications that he's raised today. Like, well, if, if the law needed to be removed, if it was just temporary, does that mean it's bad? Does that mean it's against the promise made to Abraham? What purpose then does the law have or did it have in Israel's history? Why was it not the vehicle through which God would fulfill the promise to Abraham? Does this not mean that it was against the promise to Abraham? If it's not against the promise to Abraham, what exactly was it doing within God's greater purposes for Israel and ultimately for all the nation? So these are some of the things that we'll look at uh, next week. And we will um, we'll continue. It's, like I say, it's very dense. That's a very dense section, but we basically have to become Jewish for a little bit. And I don't mean presently Jewish. I mean Jewish in the first century sense and understand exactly what is um, how they would have been thinking, how Paul was thinking. And I think, I think if we, if we jumped into Paul's mind, we would, we would see Deuteronomy 27 through 30, basically, and then an, an exegesis of, of that passage which is exactly what he's doing in Galatians 3. He's exegeting that, really exegeting the whole Pentateuch. 